Hello, what a privilege to be with you. I've always thought that the William Wilberforce weekend is about the most stimulating weekend in Washington, so I'm terribly sorry that we're not together live, but this is a great privilege. Wilberforce was actually born the same year that our Guinness Brewery was founded, and my ancestor Arthur Guinness knew Wilberforce and supported him when he was older. So he's always been a great hero of our family, and I'll say more about that as we go on. As you all know, the pandemic broke out at the same time as Lent and then the Jewish Passover, which are both times of self-examination and reflection. And I think the pandemic has asked us all to really think through where we are and if we really are all that we should be before the Lord at this extraordinary moment in history. Above all, in terms of our personal lives, we live in a world of comfort and convenience and choices, and the angel of death has flown over, and we realize our lives are short and fragile and vulnerable, and we need to live well in the light of that brevity. And then again, you take our modern world. The heart of the modern world is control through reason, science, technology, management, punditry. And the virus reminds us we can very easily be overwhelmed and we need to live much more humbly in terms of our self-reliance and sense of mastery. Or take the Western world. You can see in a lot of the discussion of the virus, we are a cut flower civilization. And notions like human dignity or freedom have had their foundations undermined. And the question is, will they be restored or severed forever? But I want to focus today on the American crisis. Because the theme of this year's series, Truth and Love, obviously grows out of the heart of where we are in the American crisis. And I think we have to understand the crisis to really see the significance of this magnificent theme and what we as followers of Jesus are contributing and standing for at this particular moment. The climax of the Revolutionary War was Yorktown in 1781. And tradition has it, when the British and the Hessian troops marched out to surrender, they were ordered to play A World Turned Upside Down. Now, that was a ballad that went back to the English Revolution. And the idea was deeply biblical. Some of the English revolutionaries said that freedom is the man who dares to turn the world upside down. The idea was biblical. We all know that the agitators, when Paul came to uh, Ephesus, the agitators said, these men who've turned the world upside down have come here. Now, what was the biblical idea? God created order. Humans, through sin, create disorder. So God is working to restore his world. And as we come to know him with our gifts and callings, we become partners with him covenantally to help 
restore the world. So when we turn the world upside down, we're turning upside down the status quo of our day in order to turn the world the right way up. Now, that was the idea in the English Revolution, which, of course, failed. It's called the Lost Cause. But it was the first of the five great major revolutions of the modern world. The English, 1642. The American, 1776. The French, 1789. The Russian, 1917. And the Chinese, and I as a small boy, was there, 1949. Now, the significance of those is that the first two are very close. The English Revolution failed, the American Revolution succeeded, but both were biblical. Through the invention of printing and the power of the Reformation, the 17th century was called the biblical century, and the great model was the Hebrew Republic from the book of Exodus. So both of those were biblical. But the French was expressly anti-biblical, anti-Christian, anti-religious, and anti-clerical. And that hostility to religion, and certainly to the Christian faith in the church, has been a characteristic of the French and the Russian and the Chinese ever since. Now, why does that matter? It is the deepest key to the crisis of the Republic today. Many people point out that America is as deeply divided now as at any moment since just before the Civil War. But why? Some blame the president, but he's not the cause. He's the consequence of it. Some look at the social media, but the social media are the reinforcements of it, not the root. Some say it's the clash between the coastals, California and New York, against the heartlanders, the Midwest, and so on. And that's partly true. Others say that the clash is between the nationalists and the populists over against the globalists, George Soros-like people who believe in a borderless world. And that's partly true, too. But I would argue, and I'm not alone, the deepest division of all is the division of those who understand the Republic and freedom from the perspective of 1776 and the American Revolution, which was largely, but sadly not fully, biblical. And those who understand America and freedom from the perspective of the French Revolution and its heirs. Now you say the French Revolution? What's happening in France? No. The French Revolution lasted 10 years only. And then in came Napoleon and a dictator, and he said the French Revolution is over. But like a huge volcanic explosion, Vesuvian, the lava, as it were, of the revolutionary faith has flowed out ever since then. If you take the three great ideals, liberté, fraternité, Egalité, the French Revolution did almost nothing for liberty. Think of the reign of terror. But the ideal of fraternity or brotherhood was the first to be picked up, and it flowed into what was called revolutionary nationalism in the 19th century. 
and that gave rise to the unification, say, of Italy, the independence in Greece, and even to the thinking behind Theodor Herzl and the rise of secular Zionism and the restoration of Israel. In the 20th century, through the work of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels in the 19th century, it was the third element, egalite, equality, which was picked up in revolutionary socialism. Obviously, that's behind the Russian Revolution and the Chinese Revolution. Now, we, of course, are in the 21st century. What we're seeing is the French Revolution breaking out in terms of what's now known as cultural or neo-Marxism, with its central philosophy, critical theory. What do I mean? Well, in the 1920s, an Italian Marxist called Antonio Gramsci sat in jail under Mussolini and tried to figure out why Marxism had never happened as Marx predicted. And basically shifted from the economy to culture and from the proletariat, a revolution in the streets, to what he called the hegemony, the dominance of the cultural elites, the gatekeepers. His ideas flowed down into the Frankfurt School, in America, particularly through the thinking of Herbert Marcuse, who was very important in the 1960s. And it was in 1967, and then again in 1968, that Marcuse, and Rudi Deutschke, the leader of the Red Brigade in Germany, called for a long march through the institutions. What did they mean? Well, I first came to this country in 1968. Martin Luther King had been assassinated in April. Later, Senator Bobby Kennedy. Later still, the so-called Chicago police riots at the Democratic Convention. But a hundred American cities were ablaze. And yet, the radicals knew that that would not mean victory. So what was the long march? They needed to be more patient and win the colleges and universities, the press and the media, and the world of entertainment in Hollywood. And then they would have cultural hegemony, the cultural dominance in the gatekeeper class. And of course, a little over 50 years later now, we can see they won. Now, what do I mean? Ideas like political correctness, postmodernism, tribalism, sexual revolution, and things down currently to the rage for socialism. All of those ideas go back to the years of the French Revolution, 1789, and they have nothing to do with the American Revolution, 1776, and its biblical roots. Now, the trouble is today, the big difference between now and the 1850s, there's no Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln addressed the evils of the time, slavery, in the light of what he called the better angels of the American character. He appealed to the Declaration of Independence. We have people talking today, as you know well, make America great again. But no one talking about what made America great in the first place. And it was not the military. And it was not the economy. So it's very important to see 
how different the ideas are which flow from the French Revolution and the ideas which flow from the American Revolution. You think of St. Paul writing to the Galatians. He says, who has bewitched you? You switch from the gospel of grace to a gospel of works. And in many ways, what I'm saying today is, who's bewitched America? It's in the process of switching from the gospel that came from the American Revolution to the gospel that came from the French Revolution, which is not good news, but bad news. Now we haven't time to go into a full description of the differences. Take some of the obvious ones stated rather briefly. There's a difference over their roots. The American Revolution was rooted in the Scripture, in Exodus, Deuteronomy, the Torah. Through the teaching of Calvin, Zwingli, Bullinger, Knox, Cromwell, Cromwell says the Exodus is the direct parallel to what he was trying to do in the English Civil War. And of course, that came over with the Mayflower. And then John Winthrop, and then New England. So what was the lost cause in Old England became the winning cause in New England. The roots are completely different. The French roots, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Voltaire, and later thinkers from the French Enlightenment. Well, take a second difference, the difference in terms of their understanding of humanity. The biblical American revolution is realistic. You have a separation of powers in the Old Testament. But certainly the idea behind the American separation of powers, checks and balances, comes from James Madison through John Witherspoon. Why? Because we've fallen. You need ambition to counteract ambition, checks and balances because of egotism and so on. The French Revolution, utopian. Man was born free, Rousseau said, and everywhere is in chains. So just remove a chain or two through politics, education, psychology, whatever, and humans will be happy, free and fulfilled. Nonsense. And you can see in the Russian Revolution, the French Revolution and the Chinese Revolution, the utopianism was disastrous. Whenever there's a gap between the ideal and the real, the gap will always be filled with force, violence. And that's why utopianism is the father of the worst evils and violence. We'll take a third difference, the whole notion of constitution. Many Americans don't realize that the American constitution, we the people, etc., comes from the Hebrew notion of covenant. And you can see the incredible difference today. For people in our secular world, thinking in more the French style, constitution is simply law, contract, interest. No, no. Go back to Exodus, and you can see that the Sinai covenant is freely chosen consent. That's the origin, the consent of the covenant. It's a morally binding pledge. And it's a matter of the reciprocal responsibility of all for all. So covenantal constitutionalism includes the notion of freedom 
and of trust and of trustworthiness. And of course, that binds together the truth and love, which is the theme this weekend. We'll take another major, major difference. The way the two revolutions address wrongs. They both agree there are wrongs. There are injustices, oppressions in the world. But in the French style, and according to the understanding of critical theory, what you look for is the majority and the minority, the oppressors and the oppressed. People have the power and people are the victims of power. And then there's no truth, remember, following Nietzsche, God is dead, truth is dead, everything's only power. Critical theory becomes a way of exploiting victimhood in order to change the status quo to a new one, but of course based only on power, and so they become the new problem replacing the old problem, and that retaliation of wrong answered by revenge goes on and on and on, and you have a Corsican blood feud writ large in the culture warring of America. And that's where we are today. And quite literally, there will be no end to it with the talk of reparations and so on. Now compare that with the biblical way of putting things right and addressing wrongs. Evil addressed as evil. But then the possibility of repentance, which both in Hebrew, teshuvah, and in Greek, metanoia, has that idea of a radical and complete about turn. But then repentance followed by forgiveness. Forgiveness freeing and cutting off the past completely. And forgiveness freeing the future from the burden of the past. And so you work towards finally a reconciliation in which enemies can be made truly friends, as Abraham Lincoln used to say, and as we see very much in the early church. So you think of the early church, their idea of the Pax Christi, peacemaking under God, far better than Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The Roman peace, as many of the historians like Tacitus say, is a peace through power. In other words, you have peace when one power or another dominates all the other powers. But of course you have oppression and dictatorship and imperialism, whereas Pax Christi, the peace of Christ, peace made with God through the blood of the cross, is a completely different understanding. I can mention lots of other differences. But you can see as things are played out, 2016 election, the Kavanaugh hearings, the Russian collusion case, the Mueller hearings, and various things like this, you can see almost daily in American daily life and politics the clash between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. The tragedy being, as I said, there's no Lincoln addressing the better angels. Now, I'm not American. I'm European. I'm a great admirer of this country. But to me, this country has done so much for the gospel around the world and so much standing for principles like religious freedom that it would be a tragedy of historic 
proportions, if America turns away from the groundings of true freedom and goes away, that will be a disaster for freedom and humanity in the future. If the camera is the other way around, I could show you some of the heroes on my wall and the signed autographs I have. One of them, W.B. Yeats, the Irish poet. You remember in his great poem, The Second Coming, he talks about what rough beast is slouching towards Bethlehem to be born. A little higher than W.B. Yeats, I have Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and I have a letter from him personally. But you remember what he said to Americans in the 1970s in his warning to the West? Are you prepared to gamble your civilization? That's what America is doing now. And that's what this series is about, not for America's sake, but for the gospel's sake. Because we are the guardians, not just of truth and love, and highly radical, distinctive, rich, deep views of truth and love. We are the guardians of words, of human dignity, of freedom, of justice, of community, and many of the things that are absolutely essential to the world and humanity of the future. One of my prized possessions, which I'll just show you here if the camera picks it up, is William Wilberforce's book. What's interesting is he signed the book and in the front is a letter he's tipped into it. He saw that some young friends of his were getting married and he writes to them and says, I want you to know the secret of the great change in my life so that it can make a difference in yours. But what's so moving about this to me is the date. February 1833, just four months before he died. So he's still fighting against slavery. And as you probably know, it was abolished in the British Empire four days before he died. But while he's fighting political battles still, right to the end, he's also reaching out with the gospel. And you can see at the end of the book I have, the young couple have read it, ticked it on the date they had each finished it and signed their initials. And it's a wonderful example. Our evangelical ancestors were people who engaged public life were there in all the forefront of the battles, like William Wilberforce. But at the same time, they never lost their love for the Lord. They never lost their reliance on prayer. And they never lost their passion to reach out with the good news of Jesus. May we be the same. So sorry we're not together live, but I trust this series as a whole is a tremendous help to all of you, wherever you are, across America or around the world. God bless you all.